Well, would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we'll continue with what we started last week. Mark chapter 1. And let's start reading in verse number 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, of course, there's one in the seat in front of you. You're welcome to use that. If you don't own one, you're welcome to take that. The same version that I'm reading from today. Mark chapter 1, verse number 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Well, we'll stop right there. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, this passage of Scripture and what it has to say to us today. I pray, Lord, you'd fill me with your Spirit Help me now to be clear and accurate and practical as I try to present uh, what I think you have for us here today. Uh, protect me from saying anything I ought not. Help me to be bold to say whatever I should. And I pray that all of us would have ears to hear and that you would speak to us today. Father, we know this is your word. Uh, it's not the words of just some man. We know that John Mark was used by God to pen this passage, but Lord, we also know that it's the very words of God. And so we pray that we would receive it as such, that you would speak to our hearts and change us today. Uh, whoever needs this message, and however all of us need this message, we pray you'd apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark is here describing some of the first events in Jesus' ministry. We started looking at this passage just last week. Two events particularly are seen in the passage that we read this morning, Christ's baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. Luke, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old at the time that these events took place. That's Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. Now, I know we started to look at these, but I want, I want to question, I want to, I want to ask a couple of questions about these verses before we get into this a little bit, because there's some things here that we didn't talk about last week that we really do need to talk about, uh, especially concerning his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. We talk about those things, but do we ever ask ourselves why they occurred? Why? was Jesus baptized. Why did he need baptism? This was John's baptism. We talked about this at length last week. John's baptism. Uh, in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 4, if you look at that verse, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Why in the world was Jesus baptized? Did he have sins that he needed to repent of? That's what John's baptism was. And why did he need to go through temptation? The very fact that he was tempted has caused some to question and wonder whether it meant he had the ability to sin. Could Jesus Christ have sinned? Was there sin in him? As some would say, both the baptism and the temptation imply. So what is the Bible teaching here? Well, let's clear up that fact right now. Let's, let's make sure we understand that right off the bat. Jesus could not have sinned. He did not, he could not sin. Scripture is clear on that. John chapter 8 and verse 46, he said one time to people who desperately wanted to say yes to this, he said, which of you could convict me of sin? He could say that because there was none in him. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Peter described Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Paul said he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And those are just a few verses. We could go further than that. But the answer is no, a thousand times no, Jesus could not and would not sin. So neither of these events was concerned with that, or in any way teaches that. So they must have had a totally different purpose. And and I I want to suggest this morning at least one purpose that they fulfilled. There there may be others, but I, I want to suggest one. I think they both had a similar thing, and I think both of them were means of identification, identifying him as a man. And with man, I think both of these events where Jesus saying to all of us, I'm one of you, I'm one with you. So let's think about those two events and see if we can see that in each of them. Let's talk first of all about his baptism. That's in verses 9 through 11. And I I, I want to suggest that his baptism identified him with us. Now, I'm aware, sometimes painfully aware, of the fact that we talk a lot about baptism in this church. But the reason that we talk a lot about baptism in this church, as I've thought through this, you know, you know, as a pastor, when you, you hear yourself saying something over and over and over again, eventually you start to say, am I saying that too much? But the reason that we talk about baptism so much is because it's mentioned so much in the Bible. We talk about one of our prime methods of teaching here is to teach through Scripture, and we, we talk about some of the benefits of that. One of the benefits is you cannot escape saying things. Uh, that you might not want to talk about. You can't get on your own pet peeves because you have to follow what Scripture says. Well, the reason we talk about baptism so much is because it comes up so much in Scripture. It is an important thing in the Christian life. It's part of the Great Commission. Jesus said uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I've recently been putting the finishing touches on a a book uh, about the Acts of the Apostles, and it was based on a series that was preached here a few years back. And uh, one thing that I've learned as I've fooled around with this trying to write books is that uh, the proofreading is horrendous. This book is over 900 pages long, and I've been reading and reading and reading and reading my own words, which just makes me want to vomit anyway. And so I'm sitting there going through this, and one of the things that I've noticed as I'm rereading all of this teaching that we went through in Acts is how many times baptism came up. It's all through the book of Acts, almost to the point where you think it's the only topic that's mentioned sometimes as you're reading through there. Well, we've talked many times about what baptism means. And uh, how vital it is to us as Christians. We, we know that the Bible teaches that all believers are to be baptized after they're saved. And we know that the Bible teaches that doing so pictures what Christ did for us. We'll touch on a little, these a little bit here yet this morning. Uh, we also know that it identifies it, us with him. When we are baptized, we're saying, I'm with him. That's as simple as we can make it. And, and I want to suggest to you this morning that just as believers' baptism identifies a Christian with Christ, Christ's baptism identified him with us. The same basic purpose. Think about some things that we can, we can see here uh, in the baptism of Christ. Uh, we can see, for example, that his baptism was decisive and it was public. 
It was a specific moment in time, and it was a specific act. It marked the beginning of his ministry. It also publicly identified him with that ministry and with those he came to minister to and to save. We mentioned last time that the key verse in Mark is Mark chapter 10 and verse number 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His baptism was a decisive point-in-time event marking the beginning of that purpose, the beginning of his ministry. And it was public. He was saying for all who could see, I have come, I am here, and I have come as one of you. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that all this confused John? This confused him terribly. We, we don't really see this in, 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 in our text here today, but we do see it in the other Gospels. John, John knew who Jesus was, and John also knew exactly what his baptism signified. And so here comes Jesus, and he's, he's, he's totally confused by why Jesus would come and want to be baptized. We don't see it in Mark, but Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 13, or 3 and verse number 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? See, he was confused. It's just oftentimes we don't quite get what was going on here. But it was simply the moment Jesus used to mark the beginning, and he did so publicly. There's obvious application to us as Christians today, isn't there? When we follow the Lord's example and when we are baptized, when we're obedient to that, we're also indicating a beginning, aren't we? If we follow the biblical model where people got saved and immediately got baptized, it would make more sense. Because what you're really saying in baptism is, I am starting right now. This is the beginning of my walk with Jesus Christ. I am identifying myself with him. And from this moment on and with God's help, I will live for him. When we do this publicly, when we do it before other believers, when we do it before family and friends, before other onlookers we might not even know, we're taking a stand that follows in the footsteps of the stand that Jesus took here. It's the first of many stands we have to take as believers. One of my favorite books and one that I've spoken about many times I encourage all Christians to read is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan. In that book, there's a little section where he's, he's telling uh, an event that took place with Pilgrim and Interpreter, two different people, a guy named Pilgrim and a guy named Interpreter. And as they're journeying along on their way to the celestial city, they come up to this palace. And it is a palace that they are told can only be taken by fighting. And so they're standing there debating what to do and wrestling with themselves as to whether or not they're going to fight And as they're standing there, another guy named Strongman comes running up, and he goes right to the gate, and he says, set down my name, sir. And that's exactly what we do when we're following the Lord in believer's baptism. As Christians, we're saying, I'm one with him. Set down my name. I'm taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. John Huss was a martyr, a a bohemian martyr, he's referred to. And when he was brought out to be burnt at the stake, they put on his head a triple crown of paper, with painted devils on it. And when he saw that, he said, My Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake, wore a crown of thorns. Why should I not then for his sake wear this light crown, be it ever so ignominious? I'll do it, and that willingly. And when it was set upon his head, the bishops said to him, Now we commend your soul to the devil. But John Huss said, I, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, I do commit my spirit into thy hands, O Lord Jesus Christ. To thee I commend my spirit, which thou hast redeemed. And when the faggots were piled to Huss's neck, 
the Duke of Bavaria was kind enough to, uh, to, to give him another chance. Uh, go ahead and recant and adjure. And, and no, said Huss, I never preached any doctrine of an evil tendency, and what I taught with my lips I now seal with my blood. History is replete with that, isn't it, of Christians who had to take a stand. And that's what Jesus was doing here. And that's part of the example. His baptism was decisive. It was public. He was taking a stand and saying, I've come. I've come as one of you, and I'm ready to get started. Something else about his baptism. I see here that his baptism was approved by God. Now, we talked about this last week a little bit, so we won't talk about it much. Uh, But we can review a little. Who gave approval to Jesus Christ in this passage? Well, we mentioned at least two. We know that God the Father did in verse number 11. And we we know that God the Holy Spirit did in verse number 10. They were saying, you see, that Jesus was not just a man, but he's the man that God approved. Some say, even today, that he was merely a a good man, merely a great, a good teacher, a wonderful example, an ethical person. But God said he was more than those things. He said he was the very Son of God, and he had the complete approval of the Father. It's interesting that that approval would be restated. We're right at the very beginning of the ministry. That approval would be restated toward the end of the ministry, three years from now. And the reason that's interesting is because of a parallel between what happens here in Christ's life and the Passover that took place in Jewish homes. In a Jewish home at Passover time, a Passover lamb was always examined and approved if it was blemish-free and perfect. And then that lamb was taken into their home for three days. And kept there. And then after three days, it was examined again. And if it was unblemished and perfect, then and only then could it be killed and used for the Passover meal. And we see here that Jesus was approved at his baptism. He then walked among men for three years. And then later on at his transfiguration, which we'll talk about when we get to that passage of Mark, uh, he was approved again. And then finally, Jesus, the lamb without spot and blemish, was killed. As Jesus was stepping out of the waters of his baptism, uh, you know that, uh, that that necessarily wasn't something people were thinking about. And the words Paul would say about that, where he had future, but one day Paul would talk about that, and he would tell the Corinthian church. He said, "He said, therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us." So Christ's baptism was decisive; it was public, and it showed to all that God's approval was on him. There's something else about his baptism we could see here. At his baptism, he was equipped for the task ahead. We mentioned the Holy Spirit approved him in verse 10. But there is also the Spirit's equipping that was involved. Jesus went up from the waters of baptism, equipped, empowered, and led by the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel brings this out in a little bit more detail than Mark's. Mark's is very brief here. Mark touches on it in verse 12, but Luke gives us some detail. Luke says he went into the wilderness under the leadership and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He also says that he returned from that temptation still under the leadership of and in the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 4 verse 13, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. So, in other words, Jesus' baptism showed us that uh, the Holy Ghost was his source of power, just like he is our source of power as we navigate the Christian life today. 
all kinds of reminders of that in Scripture, aren't there? Classic, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse number 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. We know it's true. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. We know the Holy Spirit is our source of power. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, Paul said. He said to the Galatians, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So I was also demonstrating the equipping of the Holy Spirit for his ministry. But primarily, all of this, all of this, we've been dancing all around it, but let's make sure it's clear. What his baptism was saying was, I'm one of you. He was identifying himself with us, identifying himself with his people, identifying himself with those he came to save. And that's what we've said is part of Christian baptism. We base that on Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptism identifies us with his death. We are, we are, we die with him. We died with him. Baptism identifies us with him in his burial. We were buried with him and baptism identifies us with him in his resurrection. We are raised to walk in newness of life. I don't currently wear a wedding ring, but I was blessed to wear one for 35-plus years. Look forward to a day when I'll wear one again in the near future. Some have likened the identifying aspect of baptism to what is symbolized or signified by a wedding ring. You know, you can be married with or without a ring. It doesn't mean that you're married whether or not you have a ring on your finger. But when people see that ring on your finger, they know that you are married. It identifies you with that state. It says, I'm with her. It says, I'm with him. And that's exactly what baptism does. It identifies us with him. And just like Christ's, or just like our baptism identifies us with him, Christ's baptism here identified him with us. I'm hammering that, but I hope it's clear. I hope it's clear. He was not baptized because he needed to repent of sin. Every other candidate for baptism that stood in the water with him that day, that was their reason for being there. But that was not the case with Jesus. He was there to say, I'm one with you. I'm one with you. Now, before I move off the baptism, let me just make uh, two little technical points that we see in the text here, which I think are interesting, and you may or may not. I don't know. First of all, notice the words used to describe the mechanics of Christ's baptism in verses 9 and 10. You see the little word in there in verse number 9? That's the Greek word ice, which might, and I really think is, perhaps more accurately translated into, into. And you see the little, little word from there in verse number 10? That's the Greek word ek, which literally means out of. And so this language indicates immersion. It's just like every other place we see it, and I like to bring that up every time I can. The Bible is clear that there's really only one type of baptism. Baptism means immersion in water. He went into the water. He came up out of the water. So that's free. Just throw that in. And another thing I want you to notice, kind of a little technical thing, which has nothing to do with this baptism. It has more to do with the gospel of Mark. I want you to notice uh, in verse number 10, you see that Mark used the word immediately? You see that? 
That's the first of 42 times that he will use that word in his gospel. It's kind of a key word in Mark. Mark is a gospel of action. He's flying along. One event right after another, just bam, 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 this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. I just throw that out so you'll see that as we go through it. It's a very action-packed gospel. All right, well, let's move past the baptism. Let's talk for just a couple minutes about the temptation, and I want to suggest to you the same thing, that his temptation identified him with us. Mark's treatment of his, of, of his temptation is also extremely abbreviated. We just have a couple of verses there, verses 12 and 13. But if you flip over with me to Matthew chapter 4, let's read about it there and you'll see more detail. And then we can make a couple points and be done. Matthew chapter 4, which is the previous book in your Bible. And let's start in verse number 1. This is Matthew's account of the exact same incident. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Same event, just more detail given to us there in Matthew. Now, there are all kinds of things that we could think about when we consider the temptation of Christ, but I want us to concentrate on the one I mentioned, the fact that it identifies us or him with us. Jesus saying, I am one of you. Matthew's account showed, didn't it? that Satan wanted a conflict with God. Isn't that what he said there? He said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread in Matthew 4.3. But in Jesus' response, we, say, we see him saying something very interesting. He says, Satan, I'm going to defeat you as a man. I'm going to defeat you as man. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live, but by bread alone, by every word, or by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan wanted a conflict with God. Satan stood face to face with God. He knew he was facing God. He also knew that there was a prophecy that a man was going to defeat him. He remembered that prophecy that he had heard for the first time in the Garden of Eden when God had said to him, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And now he heard Jesus say, I face you as a man. I face you with man's weapons. There's a lot of things we could talk about in the temptation, but I want you to think about that. Jesus was and is one of us, and that was demonstrated in his temptation, just as it had been in his baptism in the Jordan. Now, there are some other applications we could consider, and I'll just mention them and we'll be done. We ought to mention the weapon Jesus used to face down Satan. That's important. He very specifically and very deliberately used a weapon that we have at our disposal today, and that's God's Word. That's our Bible. 
in each instance where Satan tried to, to get the Savior to sin, he responded by unsheathing the sword of the word and said, it is written. It is written. Did you see that? Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 7, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 10, get away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And all we need to remember that we have the same weapon. We have the same weapon. We have the same sword. And it is just as powerful and just as effective against the adversary today as it was when Jesus wielded it there in his temptation. Paul told the Ephesians to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The author of Hebrews wrote that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, we need to be in our Bibles. That's another thing we talk about a lot here. That's because it comes up all the time. We need to be in our Bibles. You can't wield the sword if you don't know where it's at. You can't wield the sword if you're not familiar with it. And we also ought to make one other kind of general thought, general application perhaps. Let me just make a comment about temptation itself. Jesus was tempted. It's an interesting thought. The word tempt, tempted, temptation can be used two different ways in our Bible, and we see both of them here. It can be used to, to, to refer to testing or trials. And, of course, we see, see here that Jesus was tested, wasn't he? He was tested by God. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The word can also mean a solicitation to evil, an attempt to get somebody to sin. Temptation. Of course, we certainly see Satan doing that here. So both ways the word can be used are found here in the temptation of Christ. Either It was a trial. It was a test. It was also a solicitation to evil. When we studied James a while back, we saw both of those. In James chapter 1, he uses both. James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's the New King James. In the King James, it says various temptations. And then later on, in uh, verse number 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. If, if, if you don't understand the two different meanings of the word, you could be confused. James says, Rejoice in temptation. And then later on, he says, don't you dare blame temptation on God, because God doesn't tempt. That's the devil's work. But when you understand the two different meanings, it makes perfect sense. And Jesus experienced both here. He was tested. He was also tempted as Satan tried to get him to do evil. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus was tempted. The Son of God was tempted Hold on, I have a problem with my technology. Jesus was tempted. Where was I? Yeah. The God-man was tempted. The second member of the Trinity was tempted. The one who was and is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, was tempted. He in whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily was tempted. He who would one day refer to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, was tempted. The one who would one day be called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was tempted. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that when we are tempted. When we are tempted by the same devil that Christ faced and defeated here, we need to recognize that we have the same opportunity for victory. 
If there's one thing from this description of the temptation of Christ that we need to take away, it's this. Temptation is not sin. And sometimes we get confused with that. We're going to be tempted. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to sin. Jesus shows us that. Jesus, who knew no sin, suffered temptation. When we get discouraged at the continuous temptations of the devil, and we do, don't we? We all have things the devil works on us constantly, over and over and over. Things that Bunyan would have described in uh, Pilgrim's Progress as the devil hurling darts at us as thick as hail. We have that, don't we? And we can get very discouraged by that. Well, we need to remember this truth. Uh, it's not, it's not sin to be tempted. If Satan can't get us to sin by his temptations, he'll try to discourage us in them. But we are not a failure because we are tempted. Jesus was tempted. Spafford put it so well in his hymn, he said, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Martin Luther said, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So when I read of Jesus' battle with Satan here, I cannot help but be wonderfully reminded that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Well, we've talked a lot about, about a lot of things here this morning, but let's, let's just draw it right back down because I, I want to make sure we got the, the common thought, the main thought. In both his baptism and his temptation is that same thought. In both of them, we see himself identifying himself with us. He is one of us. And as we dig deeper into the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see the significance of this. Only when he became one of us could we ever have a hope of becoming one with him. Only when he became a man and became sin for us could we ever, uh, could we ever become one with him and have our sin forgiven. And so this is an important truth. And I think it's the primary takeaway from the text. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, became one of us. Well, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and I pray that this has been helpful. Some days, Lord, I feel stumbling up here. and I feel like that today. I feel like I've not made this clear, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will take whatever stammering words have come forth from here and make them clear in the hearts of these, your people. Lord, you are our teacher. Teach us today. And I pray if there are any who need the encouragement or, or, or anything from this passage, I pray that that's what they receive. And I pray if there are any here today who, uh, who don't even know the Jesus, who came and was baptized to be one of us and was tempted in the wilderness to demonstrate that he was one of us, I pray that they'd know him today. I pray if there's any who've never trusted Christ as their Savior, that this day they would trust him. They would say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've thought about it. I know it's true. And I recognize that the only way to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I accept the gift of salvation that's in him. Lord, if there's even one who needs to pray that, would they do it today, I pray. And if there are Christians who need to pray, who need to do business with you about any other thing, whatever it might be. We talked about baptism. Father, there may be some who need to just commit right now. The next time we baptize, they're going to be obedient and follow the Lord in baptism. Uh, There may be some like that. There may be some who are struggling with temptation. And I pray they're encouraged by the fact that Jesus was tempted. Uh, Lord, just whatever decisions need to be made, whatever prayers need to be prayed, as we conclude our service with a song, help us, Father, each one, to do business with you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.